Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing for Alberta on Wednesday, January 5th. 2022. We are live streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many peoples. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. We will endeavour to bring you timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 situation in Alberta and take questions from the public and the media. The views of our panellists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans, attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 in Alberta as possible. As always, we will start things off with an update on the COVID-19 situation in our province. Welcome everyone to our first broadcast of 2022. Simultaneously, so much and absolutely nothing has changed since we last gathered. Last week, Alberta parents and educators learned that winter break would be extended by an extra week under the guise of making schools safer for our youngest Albertans to return January 10th. A narrative we've heard before, but a story that is yet to find a chapter that seems that sees safe practices integrated into our classrooms, and I am not convinced this time will be entirely different. I would like to start off by saying that the POP Alberta team believes in-person learning is best for tiny humans. We know in-person education allows them the opportunities that cannot be matched in this digital format that I am currently meeting with all of you on at this moment in time. But we do question, and what we really keep asking is, what is the government doing to make that safe? And what could they be doing, which I think we're going to hear a lot about today, is a fair bit that they're not doing. So before we start our conversation into back to school, I would like to bring up Dr. Joe Vipond um, into our conversation to share an update on Alberta's current publicly available numbers. Dr. Vipond, happy 2022. And to you, Michelle, and to all of Alberta, um, I just got back from a shift in the eMERGE and man, it was jam-packed full of COVID. Um, I fortunately didn't admit anybody with COVID, at least not that anybody had tested positive prior to to visit, but I saw some pretty sick people and some people who are really distressed by what they're going through, um, really challenges this narrative that Omicron is mild and that there's, um, uh, you know, such thing as a, uh, mystery illness that no one's ever seen before that we can feel relaxed about, um, you know, this is, this is new. This is new to everyone. This is not your, this is not your mother's or even your older selves, um, COVID. So it's a strange, strange time we live in. But on to the numbers. Um, so our numbers uh, yesterday, 4,768, which is a 69% increase over last Tuesday's 2,823. So that's a, a pretty massive jump again, week over week. 
Um, and of course, that's nowhere near representative of what the actual case numbers are out there because a lot of people are doing rats at home, rapid uh, antigen tests. Those are not being reported to the government. Um, so this is just a, a, a very poor, fuzzy, pixelated picture of the actual landscape on the ground. And you can also tell that by the um, test positivity, which is 36.92% yesterday. That is a new pandemic record, besting yesterday's pandemic record at 36.20%. So just a little bit of a half percent above um, that one. And also to remind people that last week at this time it was 30.08%. Um, so now we're back into regular testing. It's no longer the holiday period. I would have hoped that those numbers would be dropping, but they are not. Um, hospitalizations, um, well, you know, I've talked about this before, how the numbers get revised all the time. So the actual number for, well, the reported number for yes, uh, yesterday is 398. Um, and that is only uh, up seven from the day before, which is 391. But the number we reported yesterday was 375. So it was revised from 375 yesterday to 391 today. So you can see that as those revisions go up, it looks like it's not going up that much. Oh, it's only up seven. But really it was up from the reported number yesterday of 23. So that's a, a huge jump. And speaking of huge bump, jumps, we've gone from 62 ICUs to 72 ICUs for this quote-unquote mild disease. And of course, 11 mild deaths reported as well. Those mild deaths were um, amongst a 50-year-old, uh, two 60-year-olds, four 70-year-olds, and four 80-year-olds. Um, and of course, I'm facetious in the use of the term mild deaths because, of course, there is no such thing. Um, we haven't had a report, uh, a Protect Our Province Alberta report, since the reported pediatric death yesterday. I want to take a moment to pause for that little one who I feel we failed. Um as a province, and I wish I could have done more as an individual to, to protect him or her. The other thing that I don't have today is the breakdown of the admits, but I can tell you in the seven day period from uh, December 29th, uh, six day period maybe, from December 29th to, to yesterday, there were 31 pediatric admissions to hospital. Um, never mentioned by Dr. Hinshaw yesterday or Dr. Hinshaw today, I think we need to draw attention to the fact that there were 31 pediatric admits. Um, you can look at my tweet um, thread to see the, the breakdown of the day, uh, the uh, ages. There were two um, ICU admits in that period as well. So uh, on to school, I guess. I think we have a lot to talk about. I, I don't want to preempt this conversation, but just to say that um, we continue Although our government continues to say that, that it's airborne transmitted, we have no acknowledgement of that um, by the government in their policies. Um, and therefore, if you do not, do not mitigate the right form of transmission, you will fail. You can deep clean all you want. It's not going to make any difference in these schools to these kids because it's not transmitted by contact. So you've got to have airborne precautions. And I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So I'll, I'll turn it back over to you, Michelle. 
Thank you very much, Dr. Vipond. Um, with us again today is Dr. Wing Lee from Support Our Students Alberta, an advocacy group that has been working tirelessly to keep parents informed about school cases of COVID and lobbying the government to implement effective mitigation members measures. If I could speak, that would be great. Welcome back, Dr. Lee. Thank you so much for giving us your time again today um, to talk about where things were when we left in December and from your perspective, whether or not we can expect any positives to come out of what has been announced over the last couple of days. Thanks, Michelle. And good to be back here, though I wish that the story would change for once. So for those who were listening to the education minister uh, just previous to um, our streaming she did announce that Alberta students will be going back in person uh, starting Monday, January the 10th, um, just a few days away. However, the problem is we did not hear any meaningful um, acknowledgement or addressing of how little the government did, um, you know, in other ways to, to mitigate airborne transmission, which um, Dr. Vipon touched on. What I wanna do today, because we have the focus, um, you know, of the public discourse, uh, schools are imminently restarting. I really want to reset the narrative um, because listening to, you know, Dr. Henshaw and um, Minister LaGrange over and over again, you kind of forget how much they've eroded um, from what would be a safe, comprehensive package of tools. And so I'm gonna take some time and go into just the basic advocacy points um, of what we and other advocates have joined in chorus saying we need layers of mitigation. So whenever you're ready, I uh, have some slides here to take everyone through um, what a safe school reopening should look like. And many of these points are upcycled because we keep saying every time schools come back from holiday or from a closure, um, we need comprehensive uh, multi-layered approaches. So next slide. So here, here we are historically, if we want to situate ourselves in the context is this is actually the third school year. Uh, if you remember the very first school year, school closed in March and never opened again for that very first, um, you know, the pandemic started up in 2020 this, in the spring. And then we have, you know, journeyed on this roller coaster of waves. We had uh, the fall wave of 2020 and then we had alpha in the spring and Delta um, this fall and now we have Omicron. And what have we learned is that this government has not done enough and every school closure is the result of unmitigated spread. Uh, next slide. So we have the tools now, you know, we have navigated many, many months of schools, pandemic, what we need to add to the um, mitigation package. But what I want to reiterate is that Alberta invested among the least for safe school protocols. So when government says we're following in line other provinces, we actually don't measure up um, in terms of proactivity and direct um, 
funding targeted for protocols for COVID. So these have been bare minimum. And what's actually been happening since the summer of 2021 is we've lost actually some of these default basic measures. So before I go into the list, I think we need to reiterate that this is because of lack of political will. This is not because we don't know what needs to get done, but we need centrally funded distribution of safety measures that are universal to all school boards. And the tools have to be layered and multi-pronged. What's happening right now is that we get one measure and we have others taken away. So rapid tests are coming, but now we no longer have access to PCR testing for schools. So how will we get notification? And I'll go into that into a little detail. The other aspect I want to bring up that the government continues to neglect is including the excluded voices. So when schools are delayed, uh, they did have a plan for children with complex needs that access resources at school. They've they've lost out again on being at the table and being included in these conversations. So now that schools are reopening, we have to address that there are many communities out there that this government has not, um, not only not listened to, but have taken resources away from. So this is a, a little overview. Um, next slide, please. And again, I want to revisit this idea that we want to operate on what is a Swiss cheese model. And I've been hearing in the discourse that this is kind of getting lost in the public because we're saying, oh, we have new tools. Now we have to get rid of the old ones. And that's not the case. What we need is to add each of what's available in terms of measures onto one another. And that helps to cumulatively mitigate the risk especially in schools. And yesterday in our conversation, next slide, Chad, I think what we can reimagine to make it a little more palatable for the public is, you know, maybe we have to readdress this model as layering for the extreme cold, because in Alberta, at least in Edmonton, eh, we are in a deep freeze. So would you go out into the cold, um, say you got a new toque? Uh, okay, it's great that you have a new fluffier toque that's insulated, but are you going to now forego all the other layers uh, that you had on your torso, on your feet, on your hands. No, we need all of these additional layers. And even if one is improved, it doesn't mean that you get to uh, dismiss the other areas because that means pockets where transmission will still happen. Next slide. So here's the list. And I try to, you know, be concise and succinct, but because Schools are such dynamic environments and we've neglected them for so long. We do need to look at this at multiple angles. So the number one thing, of course, is limiting community spread. Um, next, testing, tracing, isolating. Third, the environment, the learning environment, the work environment, uh, PPE. Four, it's data transparency. How much do we actually know about what is going to be happening in the schools once they open? Five is more education adjacent, but it's about the human supports family supports, and also staffing contingency uh, in the school environment. And last, that is perhaps something new that we've added is a vaccination campaign and increasing access. So I will go into these in a bit de more detail now. Next slide. So first we hear over and over again, the CMOH always says when school cases go up that schools reflect community spread. Yes, indeed, that of course is true. You know. Schools are the community hubs of um, every community, every neighborhood. 
that's where children go to congregate to learn. And that's where a lot of the uh, needs that are in the community are met. But we also have not done you know, anything to mitigate community spread before we open schools on Monday. We didn't in, put in uh, you know, restrictions for large gatherings enough. We are still seeing high community spread. CMOH just said that community transmission rate is the highest it's ever been. So how can you say that schools are just gonna reflect community spread and then do nothing about community spread? We, I think all along should have been prioritizing schools because they are essential and foregoing the non-essentials in other aspects of the community so that children can have their stability, basic needs met at safe schools. That's not the point of contention. It's more what has the government done on the other side of the lever to lower community spread. Next slide. So testing, tracing, and isolating, of course, was a big topic in the summer. And I'm not sure a lot of parents were in the loop about how much the contact tracing was eroded unless you were in one of the schools where you got a notification, but it didn't tell you much. It just says no one has to isolate. You don't know what class it's in. You don't know if your child was exposed. So what we should be doing now, if we are going to make schools safe, we need the tried and true uh, default protocols of contact tracing, uh, reinstating class-wide and school-wide AHS back notification because teachers and admin shouldn't be doing the bulk of this work. They are not public health workers. Uh, notifying close contacts, even just letting the people that were in the closed classrooms know where there was a, a rapid test uh, positive report, that will help with mitigation and also helping uh, assess the public risk profile. The other side is I think that we do need to continue PCR testing. They need to redeploy um, some resources because we need to put what we have in official documentation. So this will have legal fallouts for parents that need to take time off to you know, help, help their kids at home while they're isolating and just so many ripple effects of taking away PCR testing that RETs will not replace. Uh, and the data transparency what is one key factor of not being able to track outbreaks in schools anymore because it's not open information. Next slide. And now one big piece, of course, I will reiterate is COVID is airborne. And we did see the education minister do a dance, uh, you know, today on the presser that they did what they could by moving some money around. I will be the first, I guess, to debunk that here that a lot of the capital reserves that school boards had were already drained um, for the re, you know, the refunding or defunding of operations. So in reality, the reserves were not allocated for capital um, maintenance and infrastructure upgrades. So really that's hand-waving for them to say, we, we told the school boards to do what they had with beans um, and they, the government still has not addressed ventilation, filtration, purification. And we've had other uh, presentations uh, like by Connor Rizicki that discusses what we need in terms of the technical upgrades in classrooms. And again, none of that was addressed today at the announcement. That is a huge piece because transmission of COVID in the air occurs when students take off their masks to have lunch, when they have snacks. Uh, you, sometimes you're going to have sliding off the faces with the young children. And one group that I want to uh, 
plug here that's been doing some great grassroots work in terms of public education uh, about air filtration and ventilation in schools is Fresh Air Schools Alberta. So look them up for more information. Next slide. The other key aspect from a policy angle is that going back to schools, K to three is exempt from masking still, which really negates the whole idea that they're trying to give out these surgical or medical grade masks. When you have an entire sector of elementary schools that are exempt, you will have school board inconsistency. So we had that in the fall, you're still gonna have pockets of unmasked children in schools I'm not really sure how the government would explain this uh, inconsistency because we're they're just performing right now um, in terms of um, the masking situation. All right, next slide. And I'll just go through, you know, again, the seal and fit of a mask is very important. And loosely sealed, even if they call a medical grade mask is, not going to mitigate transmission as much as it could be in the classrooms. Um, you know, there's already a lot of data out there and I'm just going to acknowledge briefly that N95s or respirators are an important piece to this puzzle uh, that this government again has not recommended to school boards and provided uh, expertise to guide school board trustees in making these uh, changes. And this needs to be a central distribution of knowledge uh, because downloading the school boards is not going to be helpful. Next slide. And, you know, Dr. Vipon touched on this, but again, every school letter that we've received as SOS has, you know, there's a case in the school, but we are mopping the floor. We are wiping the tables and we are here every wave trying to say that the hygiene theater needs to stop and the resources must be redeployed to mitigate airborne transmission. And again, policymakers are very hesitant because it is costly to pivot uh, this narrative, but we will be back at you know, square one if we don't change our ways um, and stop the hygiene theater in the school classrooms. Um, next slide. So again, it's it's not going to be easy to know what's going on in schools because the government actually have they stopped publishing cases uh, or notifying individual cases. They pivot in the in the fall to outbreaks, and they keep changing the goalposts of what an outbreak is, how many would uh, you know qualify for in school or scenario change, we need information, you know, um, having a black hole of information is going to be problematic and also very concerning because we won't have any accountability as to what is happening on the ground in schools when we reopen. Next slide. And one avenue that we also want to advocate for is that when there are scenario changes because of mass spread, which is inevitable in schools that weren't made to be safe, we need the government to step in and provide financial support um, and mental health support for families that have been through this pandemic for 20 plus months. 
they continue to negate the idea that schools have, you know, these alternative supports, support gaps. And what I think that we really need to push is that put, putting schools online or even going remote learning for a week or two is hard on families because you've taken all of their help away. Uh, even now, employers, I think, are less understanding of the situation. There are no more federal supports paid leave. We need a consistent, comprehensive approach that addresses this as well, because schools are not standalone islands, um, and families have been left out of a lot of these, you know, um, multifaceted uh, resources. Next. So lastly, I want to say that we should have been taking this time to do a booster drive. We bought a week uh, in the delay what was the government doing in terms of increasing uptake for children aged 5 to 11 uh, for their first doses or changing the interval if necessary for certain situations? Just something uh, to acknowledge that we have really low intake for children in this province, but also boosters for education workers, making them accessible. They were not available at schools before the break. Why don't we try that? Why don't we also bring in the public libraries in the fold, recreation facilities? Other provinces like Ontario have these, you know, community collaborative uh, projects to roll out vaccines, um, make people know they are safe, make people know that they're important and they're free. We just have not done any of that. We, this province has been extremely behind in terms of awareness and that is something that we could have been doing with the time that we bought. Next slide. And that's it for me. I know that was lengthy, but I felt like we really needed to paint the picture that the government refuses to acknowledge is that we have all the tools. We've tried door one to keep schools open. We've tried door two, which is close the schools when things get bad. We need to try this time to open safely with all the measures um, and some that I may have even missed from other angles, such as, you know, workplace um, hazards and, you know, um, other community supports that I haven't brought up, but it's time that we try door three and that's to open safely. And unfortunately, I, I, without that, we will be back here with mass school closures, unfortunately, because Omicron will be ripping through the schools without these much needed measures. Thanks. Thank you so very much, Dr. Lee. We are also so excited about we're so cold or who knows, been living in a polar vortex for so long that one of the Protect Our Province team members um, also created a graphic that we will continue to build on as we are curious as to whether or not the Swiss cheese model has fallen through in some ways. And when it is, you know, minus 40 with the wind chill, it is easy to think about whether or not you should be wearing your underwear when you're outside with your long underwear over top and then your pants over top of that and then your snow pants over top of that. Um, and again, it is very concerning that three years into this, we don't have policies in place and funding in place to allow everyone access to a toque um, or mitts 
or whatever piece of that puzzle it is that is going to keep our tiny humans as safe as they can. As we move into our panel conversation, I'm going to bring Dr. Vipon back up just to briefly touch on pediatric hospitalizations, and then I'm going to bring the rest of our panelists in to take some of the gazillion questions I have. Dr. Vipond. Dr. Vipond, you are muted and semi-frozen. Now you are unmuted. <laughs> Can I just um, start by saying how amazing support our students have been? I think every Albertan who has kids and who cares about kids should support support our students because they've just been incredible advocates throughout the pandemic. Um, and I, I don't think it's incorrect to say that almost everything that they recommended here, maybe except for vaccinations because they weren't around a year ago, we were, we, um, when we were Mass for Canada, were advocating with support our students a year ago. So that's where we've gotten in the last year. Um, the other thing I wanted to add is that the graphic um, was a brainstorm of Dr. David Keegan. So let's uh, let's give him some credit because um, it's, it's really quite genius. The fact that we need all the layers when we're out there, not just uh, not just one or two layers if you're going to be warm when you're shoveling snow. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to mention to um, to uh, uh, Dr. Wing uh, Lee's announcement is that the double dose rate for the five to 11s is four percent. So I just want everybody to think about that. We consider full protection from Omicron three vaccines. Four percent of our five to elevens have had two vac or uh, two vaccines. Only four percent, and and then um, somewhere around forty percent have had had uh, one. So um, not 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 so good. Um, okay, so the but the reason why I wanted to come on is because uh, late breaking news. Um, I mentioned the hospitalizations for the last week up until yesterday. In the last twenty four hours, there have been. 13 pediatric admissions, including three to the ICU. And that is a huge, huge number for, for kids. Um, uh, so really, really worrisome uh, data. We, knew, we know that uh, Omicron tends to affect kids um, worse than other age groups. And I think we're now seeing evidence of that. So back to you, Michelle. Although you still have to stay because we're going to get into our panel conversation now. So I'm going to bring back Dr. Wing Lee. Um, I am also wanting to offer an exceptionally warm welcome back after a while to Bridget Sterling, a PhD student at the University of Alberta's Department of Educational Policy Studies, where her research focuses on children's rights and the politics of childhood in Alberta education law and policy. Um, she recently has been working on childhood and COVID-19 policies in schools, and up until partway through the fall, she was the Ward G trustee on the Edmonton for the Edmonton Public School Board. Um, Welcome back, Bridget. Thank you for giving us your time today. And a first time Pop AB welcome to Dr. Joseph Oliver. Dr. Oliver is an Ontario-based pediatrician here to answer a lot of the questions that we've been receiving from parents about COVID and kids. He's also spent the pandemic working tirelessly bringing vaccinations into underserved communities in Ontario, creating awareness and advocating with Masks for Canada to keep all Canada's of Canada safe from this airborne virus. First time welcome to you, Dr. Oliver. Thank you so very much for making time to be with us today. Um, there are a lot of questions from folks at home. I know there is no way I'm going to ever get through all of them. So I'm gonna dive right in. You are all grown humans 
mute and unmute yourselves as you see fit. Scramble, go to some fisticuffs. We'll find some positive, weird energy, if nothing else, so people listen to jump right in and express your opinions and answer the questions. Um, First and foremost, as Dr. Lee said, this is the third school year with interrupted learning for our tiny humans. And in Alberta anyway, we seem to be following the same path to, into learning, um, this time with the added barrier of access to proper testing. There's no tracing on the part of AHS. We have shortened isolation periods for the majority of Albertans. Um, and with what we've heard from officials, can any of you see Anything meaningful in place that will allow our students to make their way safely into classrooms next week? The silence is golden. I'll jump in. Um, I guess I would just uh, preface this with, uh, I work in pediatric mental health in Ontario. And one thing that is bearing out on the ground today in Ontario, where we have also delayed school um, by an amount is that the young people I meet with are devastated to not be in school. And while the parents I meet with are similarly devastated, they're also terrified of sending their kids to schools without them first having implemented the things that wing went over the airborne precautions. And so the question, can I see Can I see any hope? Um, I think the awareness, uh, I haven't joined these before, but listening to to, to Wing's talk and, and listening to, to folks um, on social media, and uh, I think there's an awareness of what's needed, and that has started to permeate throughout communities, um, certainly in Ontario, and I suspect they're in Alberta. Um, and I think uh, some fear and not unjustified fear uh, on the part of parents and on the part of teachers and, and on the part of kids. Kids are smart um, uh, is starting to creep up. And I'm hopeful that that will push things to be done in schools there. The timeline is, is tight. Uh, and I think there's no harm whether uh, you're someone who wants school to start now or yesterday or someone who wants school to start in months or in a week. There's no harm in, in pushing aggressively and, and using that awareness to push uh, uh, schools and boards of government to, to implement the things Wing was talking about. So I see the awareness. Yeah, and if, if I could speak to those delays, like one of the things we keep seeing in terms of uh, impacts on kids is that every time we, we keep having these delays and starts of schools or we go offline or we go online for a while because things are getting bad um, and we don't use that time huh. to do anything meaningful. And so what I see over and over again is that we're continuing to do um, what I think, you know, there is, you know, there, there is harm in sometimes in having to go online in terms of uh, learning loss, mental health, all of these different pieces. Um, but there's kind of a, a benefit that we could be getting if we were, you know, taking action uh, to make the changes when we're offline. So we bought ourselves a week uh, in Alberta and we did nothing with it. You know, we're not even going to have, those masks and rapid tests in place for Monday when kids do go back to school, they're going to be delayed another week. And it sounds like the masks aren't even all going to be delivered huh. in that week. What they're saying, what I'm seeing is that the, the minister says they'll be coming through February. So, you know, we're not even going to see those inadequate masks in place. So, so we bought a week and we did nothing with it. And so we keep doing this over and over again. We did this in the summer. We could have done so much work over the summer nothing happened. And so we're back in the same place again. And what do we have for, to show for 
every time we put kids back online, we don't do the things we need to do to get the schools safe when they come back. Which leads really well into one of our other questions that we've heard from a number of parents is um, the government, Minister LaGrange, as well as our Chief Medical Officer of Health and Premier Kenny, have often stated that schools are safe and that they are not a source of community transmission. Um, I would love from a medical pediatric standpoint, Dr. Oliver, um, as well as what the rest of the panelists have experienced in their practices, their thoughts on whether or not schools are a source of transmission. Maybe I can just speak from a stats perspective, because I follow these numbers pretty closely. And if you look back at the, I mean, you just pull it up right now, go right onto the uh, Alberta government website and look at what happened to a transmission rates amongst the five to 11 uh, age group starting around September 1st and going through to, oh, I don't know, around December 20th and see uh, what happened with that curve. And you can make your own interpretation of that. But my interpretation is schools drive pediatric infection. And then closely following those pediatric infections, you see rates going up in the, oh, I don't know, the 30 to 49 age group, which is I don't know, maybe the parents of these five to 11 year olds. So um, I, I see a clear footprint of school transmission and that that school transmission is ref, uh, goes back and, and causes community transmission. So I don't know if anybody else wants to weigh in on that, but it, it I guess it makes me really un, un upset because I, I, I honestly think it's kind of a bald faced lie. And if the government feels okay with spreading that kind of information. It's no wonder that school boards wonder what to do when they're getting, you know, information like that and parents. Yeah, we don't see the tracing beyond. So we saw actually in today's news conference, um, Dr. Hinshaw talk about how there's, you know, average in when they've tracked school transmissions of two additional cases, but they're not tracking it past that, right? So as soon as it gets into the home, they, they start putting that in the household spread bucket, right? When it gets into community, uh -huh. say it happens at a child's sports team after they've acquired it at school, that's how considered community transmission. And so what we're not seeing is public reporting of those kind of clusters that spread out from schools. And there's some um, research now that's coming out that, that you're seeing where they have been able, they have done the work to trace cases from school sources and they've looked at where the clusters are coming from around schools, you know, school populations. And it's very clear that clusters often are starting in the school and spreading out into the community. But because Alberta doesn't keep those in the school related bucket, they can say that um, schools aren't a driver of community transmission because as soon as it's outside the school, they call it household spread. And I would just add that this semester, I'm not sure how they can back up that conclusion without having contact tracing in place in the first place. So not having the evidence does not mean that there's lack of evidence for something, right? Just that we weren't watching or monitoring and then they jump to the idea or it's, it's conclusive, it's not happening. We just weren't tracking it. Uh, the other thing is that because we do track, uh, you know, school outbreaks as an organization, Absolutely, there are communities that once it's in one school, we do see that pattern over and over again, that that school district encounters clusters in multiple schools in that region or in that city. Um, you know, just before we left for Christmas, we had St. Albert and Okotoks. Uh, their elementary schools were really struggling. And when you 
put it together, there is the trend that one school contributes, yes, but it's a feedback, community to school, school to community. And I think isolating them in black boxes is not helpful the way that the government is trying to split those hairs. Thank you. I'm just going to keep the questions coming because we do have a lot of them. Um, some questions around whether or not the panel thinks um, with no extra mitigation measures put in place besides the RATs as well as some possible access to probably ill-fitting surgical masks, um, should kids still be able to remove their masks when sitting forward and not talking like they currently can in the system? Um, obviously, K to threes in some divisions are entirely exempt from wearing masks at any point. Um, and should students remove their masks during physical activity, so during phys ed class, that sort of thing? Medical recommendations from the panel? So caveat being there maybe there are always exceptions should students remove their masks when they're sitting forward not talking i'm presuming that they all need to breathe um, my suggestion would be that they should not remove their masks um, and also that for the most part kids wear masks quite comfortably um, there are occasionally uh, uh, neuroatypical kids or kids with sensory issues that have difficulty keeping a mask on, but not always because we shouldn't assume um, uh, or think just because we wouldn't want to wear a mask, someone, a kid might not want to, but they, they can keep them on. Um, and that extends to sports as well, again, with exceptions. Um, uh, we went to, uh, before uh, Omicron started, um, uh, skipping around, we would go to soccer games and soccer tournaments. Many kids wearing wearing masks. Many kids wearing masks. We know that kids, uh, certainly kids two years and over, can wear masks uh, comfortably. And what works out nicely, I'm just going to plug here. What works out nicely is that some of the more comfortable masks um, that uh, I would say kids are able to uh, to keep on um, more willingly, more easily, um, are the respirators, the N95. Um, um, rest I came, so these masks, uh, if I'm a kid in a classroom, I'm having a hard time keeping this on because of the way it sticks to my face and shifts around and comes down off my nose, whether I want to or not. Um, this mask would be an example of, uh, of an N95 respirator that if, if accessible between now and when school is starting on the face of a child, like they're quite comfortable. And I've noticed not necessarily just in Alberta, but Canada-wide, there is a narrative that keeps popping up uh, that is kids can't wear uh, N95 masks comfortably. They're comfy as all get out, um, uh, I, I would say. Uh, and, and they can be worn in sports. If you're wearing them in sports, you might have to change it because you're, you're sweat wetting it. Uh, and once a mask is soiled and, or wet, you, it loses its effectiveness. But absolutely, they can they can wear them with exceptions. Um, the public may be wondering why this narrative that N95s aren't comfortable, where it came from. Um, there's actually a good reason for that. The original N95s are these cup-shaped masks that pushed really hard into the face in order to ensure a seal. Um, and they are quite uncomfortable. I would find it hard wearing one of those through a, the a duration of a school day. Uh, but the newer masks, are they're called soft folds. Um, and soft is probably the most important thing. And they kind of go broadly across the face. Um, and 
Uh, my kids wear them all the time. They're they're very they're very comfortable. There's also the KN95s. I found my my girls um, really like the KN95s because it doesn't go. Uh, something about hair. I don't know that the band goes around the ears instead of around the head. Um, KN95s probably aren't as as effective as um, the N95s, the respirators. Um, but they're much, much better than the medical masks that are being provided. And with the medical masks that are being provided, if people are having a hard time getting respirator masks, um, they can get a mask brace. It's like a rubber ring that it pulls the mask onto the face because the, the concept behind these, these masks um, is, is that you don't want air going um, in and out the sides. Um, it, there's nothing magical about the fabric. Yeah, <laughs> Michelle's going to monitor the the mask nostrils that you'll see coming in the sides. Um, it's they're just not designed for the, the air to only flow in and out the mouth. They're actually designed to keep you the surgeon from spitting into the patient, or alternatively for the patient to be spraying blood into the surgeon's mouth. That's what they're designed for. Um, and so, if you want to make that that surgical mask that you're going to your kid might be provided, you want to make it effective. You need to get one of those mask braces. And there's actually online tools um, that will will teach you how to make one at home with with your own equipment. So, um, and we'll tweet some of those out later today. I was watching one yesterday that was legitimately a template that you could cut out um, on a piece of rubber, you line it right up and it made a lovely template. Um, mm. And pointing out that most of the videos that were made around that were made in 2020. Can I add a thing or do we have to move on to another? No, no. Yeah. Um, one thing I get asked a lot is, uh, you know, parents are trying to figure out how do I get my kid to wear the mask? And maybe you've spent, you know, the first 74 waves or whatever of COVID navigating that and it's been hard and maybe it hasn't gone well. Um, but you could use this as an opportunity to, to start fresh. And uh, one line that seems to work fairly well is um, validating them and then uh, just framing natural consequences positively. So what I mean by that is saying, if your kid says they don't want to wear the mask, you could say, you don't have to wear the mask. But if you do, you get to do these things or you don't have to wear the mask. But if you do, School might stay open longer and explain things that way. And while we shouldn't put the responsibility of fixing the pandemic on our children, at the same time, they want some power back and some control back in a pandemic that's taken so much. And, and that gives it to them. But that line is sometimes useful. Speaking on tiny humans and their mental health and well-being um, and giving them some of that agency, we received a couple of questions around this far in, but with cases across the country being so high and with 25% of those cases in Alberta anyway being in tiny humans, what are some tools for talking to your tiny humans about the ongoing pandemic without scaring them? And so particularly those younger ones of wanting to instill that, you know, this is still a thing and it sucks and I'm real sorry about it, but wanting them to know that there can be negative outcomes if one's not cautious. I, uh, some people may know that I, I have a little bit of a climate advocacy bent. Um, and so I've read quite a bit on this on climate because it's kind of the same issue. There's a big serious problem that is hard to fix and may have impacts on your life. How much do you share that with your kids? And the truth is, my, from my understanding, is you, is you have to share the truth. Kids have a really huge bullshitometer 
um, where uh, if if you if you try and skirt the issues, um, they they may not take well to that. I'd love to hear some other people's uh, opinions, but but basically, being open and honest and saying there's things we can do to make things better are the the the, the three things that I think people should be doing. I agree, Joe. I think a, a question on pediatric board exams in Canada should be how strong of a bullshitometer do children have? Um, absolutely. So I would say, yeah, same as with the mask discussion, what Joe's saying, validate them, uh, be honest, and occasionally check in and see how much of your own anxiety you're projecting on on your kids. And also know that you don't have to get conversations right with your kid the first, second, third, fourth, fifth time. You can always repair and take another run at it. Um, uh, and and that's totally fine and, and it works. So some things I would I would consider saying are, you know, the virus is spreading again. Um, so to keep people from getting sick, the helpers are helping and you can look at how the helpers are helping. You can uh, uh, select kid-friendly interpretation or presentations in the news. You can look at individual helpers, uh, you know, stories online with your kids, that sort of thing. Um, and you can frame it also as, yeah, this sucks. Also, here are the ways we can have some power and, and control over, over things. And all the while, just validating their emotions instead of saying, you know, don't worry. You can say, it's okay to be anxious. Here's what we can do. Um, and, and they respond well to that. And it's um, easy to sit here and say these things. So I, I would certainly add, if you ever want to see someone trying and, and bombing it the first time or two, I'll give you my address. You can drive by and, and look through the window and watch my wife and I not hitting it. But that's fine. You don't have to get it right the first time. You can take another run at it and you'll know when it, when it lands and, and when, when your kid gets it. But yeah, they have a, a strong meter for, for the BS for sure. Bridget, I would love your thoughts on this question as well. Sure. And, and I guess I can, I might speak to it from someone who thinks about um, the politics of how things and actually uh, another, another area where I've kind of looked at this and I, I feel like I've got some commonality with Dr. Vipond here is in climate change um, is I really think that that, that ability to participate and um, feel some empowerment is really important for young people. Um, and we see that a lot around issues like climate change and, and I think around the pandemic too is is feeling like there's something they can do is really, really, really important. But also, um, you know, I think it's really critical uh, to remember that, um, you know, they, they have a lot invested in the outcomes of these things. Um, and that's really important too, to remember the kids, kids do think about the future. They do think about what's gonna happen. Um, and we have to, you know, recognize and support their, their desire to participate both in, in I think in the concrete actions in the classroom, but even especially as kids get a bit older um, in some of the advocacy work and some of the conversations about it as well, right? We see young people being really powerful voices on climate. And I think um, around COVID-19, there's probably some role that young people could be playing too in talking about what makes them feel safe in school. Because um, we know from the surveys that we did with Edmonton Public, for example, that the kids actually did say that wearing masks made them feel safer in school, right? That actions that they could take made them feel safer. Um, and I think that's really important to recognize is that's, that's important for them in terms of their feelings of security. Can I add with, I, so I know there are a lot of questions, but I'll, um, on, on along those same lines, Bridget, so my kid's teacher took one of these. So this is a carbon dioxide monitor, monitor am I mean, this carbon dioxide monitor, um, and it, you can use it 
you'd have to knock off a bank to pay for one. Don't knock off a bank, but they're expensive. So that's a whole other thing. But uh, my kids teacher had it in the class to keep track of how well air was moving out of the class. And she uh, to get a sense of, you know, COVID being airborne, is it lingering in the air in our class so that the kids will breathe it in? Well, if we know we're keeping the carbon dioxide in the room down, we know air is shifting out of the class. And so there's less of a chance for kids to breathe in COVID. The kids all got so into it. She framed it in terms of like it led to a whole unit on plants and um, carbon dioxide and oxygen and all this. So you can really absolutely you can involve kids so much like that in a very empowering, empowering way. Which leads towards sort of our next question, actually, that I might throw so, to. Oh, mm -hmm. we just want to point out that, that Protect Our Province Alberta does not endorse robbing banks for CO2 monitors. Okay. <laughs> okay, I will agree that we don't endorse robbing banks in order to um, purchase CO2 monitors, but I will throw in stay tuned to our various social media platforms over sort of the next week and a half, because there's a very good chance one of the Protect Our Province members has created a DIY CO2 monitor so you can make one without having to rob a bank. So it's, it's kind of a, you know, it's a half and half. I'll, I'll, I'll go with, I'll go with both there if, if that works. Um, but that being said, it is absolutely ridiculous that time and time again, these mitigation members measures are falling on parents and teachers in order to try to keep these tiny humans safe when they are participating in their their public education and their right to have it and to be safe in those environments and the workplace health and safety component for all of our educators who have been bending over backwards over the last three years. Dr. Lee, we have had this question before, but I, it's just going to keep coming up. I know it is. Who do parents talk to? Because I'm seeing left, right, and center that they are not feeling good about Monday. Yeah, absolutely. And I would reiterate that's totally normal to feel like you're caught again in the same place, no movement, no change. And I think now, you know, it's important to talk to one another because we see these kind of pockets of parents talking and normalizing the idea that they need to help the voices, right, that are already out here and and we want to grow that movement of pushing pressure onto the government and the policymakers and the leaders that this is not just groups of radicals. This is not just groups of partisans. And they like really to pocket these concerns as just interest groups. We need to grow the awareness, just like Dr. Oliver mentioned, is I think we've done some work in moving the needle um, through this collective. But I think one resource that parents could tap into is is their parent councils and I know like asking more parents like what resources do we have left in terms of energy and time but I think that does help move the people that aren't listening uh, oh this is growing and and getting even the airborne idea um, you know into normal public discourse mainstream discourse is one of those stepping stones so on top of you know talking to your trustees pushing them their superintendents uh, they have limited power within their scope, but it needs to escalate. Um, you know, we've got an election coming up. Just remember, we can't forget that we need to be electing accountable, responsible people that believe in science. 
So it starts in our communities and our neighborhoods and moving up from there. Bridget, I've heard some really good things about what has taken place um, over the last year and a half um, from the Edmonton Public School Board um, in terms of them educating each other and themselves around best practices for mitigation. What were some of the things during your time there that helped you, your colleagues, your school community, and then ideally bringing that up and further out there, become active in seeking that information? Yeah, for sure. And there's there's a few things that, that I think were drivers there. Um, one of which is that we had, um, we certainly had a couple of trustees who really um, pushed the rest of the board into wanting to learn and work on issues. Uh, sometimes finding that key person on a board who can really push things can be helpful. Um, and then, um, yeah, I think also the demand from parents and from our community was really, really important. Uh, and also, I'm you know, the, the voices of experts, and I don't mean just, you know, sort of, I think it, it can be really easy to to want to write letters, but I think um, showing up, speaking to meetings, um, we had some folks, um, and actually some of the, the um, Protect Our Province folks even who took the time to sit down with trustees and really answer some of the the complex questions that people had, because trustees are, are decision makers, but they're not experts in, in public health or you know, um, ventilation systems or these different pieces, right? And so it's really important to help people learn. But there is um, there are forces that push the other way within education. Um, it can be really challenging. Education has an inherent sort of small c conservatism to it a lot of the time because we're talking about children and children are, you know, we're anxious about taking risk when it comes to children, right? That's a really natural feeling for people. Um, so there's some some hesitancy there. Also, the the many many other things that school divisions are dealing with in Alberta right now compounds the problem, right? So when trustees are dealing with a pandemic, but they're also dealing with an absolute nightmare of a curriculum, they're dealing with with massive funding cuts, they're dealing with all of these different things at the same time. Um, it becomes really really challenging to to sort of manage all of these issues and advocate on all of them people are really tired and they're also fighting forces within their own boards. So we've got, um, you know, we even had an Edmonton public, right? We had, you know, anti-vax COVID denialist uh, trustee on our board. Um, other other boards have much more predominance of those groups um, and that's really hard. Uh, and even for trustees on those boards who are really, really wanting to push the envelope and talk about COVID safety in some communities, um, you know, I heard from trustees who are experiencing threats of violence, um, you know, those different things who are, who are really scared to act because there was some real sense of unsafety for them and taking action. But that's where I think coalitions with parent groups, with, you know, Alberta School Councils Association support our students, um, but also the the ATA, um, these different different bodies that, that have historically sometimes butted heads with each other. And it's really essential right now that we're organizing across those groups because that's what gets people mobilized, right? It's not it's not one group, and it, it has been. Parents have really carried the bulk of the weight of this, and you know it's it is really accurate. Um, but I think we need to see see those coalitions being built more strongly, and we've seen that happen a lot, and um, probably most strongly around curriculum. But um, you know we could be doing more. 
Before we go into our final um, thoughts, comments, and summations, um, one more medical question that I would really like to touch on. Um, Dr. Oliver and Dr. Vipond as well, um, folks would love to hear your comments on accelerating second doses for five to 11-year-olds down from eight weeks to sort of that four to six weeks um, in light of the virulence of o Omicron and going back into schools on Monday with minimal protections. As Dr. Lee mentioned at the beginning, and I believe Dr. Vipond did as well, we were at about 4% of the tiny humans um, double vaccinated. And we, um, and I think a lot of the folks in Alberta know that they can choose to have their tiny human vaccinated pre that eight week window, but just wanting to sort of your guys' thoughts and opinions on the trade off of going down to that sort of three to six weeks from the eight weeks. So the initial advice from our National Advisory Council on Immunization um, for vaccinating kids 5 to 12, 5 to 11 and 11 months uh, was drawn from somewhat from work uh, from the vaccine rollout in the States. Um, and it was suggested that we do that eight-week window in between. Um, those kids getting vaccinated in the states that were done at 21 days, three weeks between vaccinations, if there are bad outcomes, maybe Joe can speak to this, but I'm not uh, aware of it. Uh, one thing I think about all the time is um, the, the fact that in medicine, every 25 to 50 years, we look back and look at things where we thought, oh, we had that wrong or we had this wrong. And, and I think about that a lot. Um, and um, I think about that when it comes to vaccinating kids at 21 days, and it still does not make me think twice about doing it. We vaccinated, I'm one story, but we vaccinated our seven, now eight-year-old at the 21-day mark. Um, maybe you can hear him crying now. It's not from the vaccine. Um, uh, and that was because, well, waiting eight weeks is the suggestion because maybe it gets you longer lasting, maybe stronger immunity. Um, there's COVID now, uh, and we don't know um, enough about Omicron. Um, we don't know that kids will be safe. You heard Joe's numbers at the, at the start, the, the admission numbers for kids. We're learning about long COVID all the time, uh, this idea that kids can uh, have difficulty thinking and processing after infection with COVID. So for me, vaccinating um, my kid at three weeks out um, was a no-brainer. A lot of thought went into what was a no-brainer. Are you on the same page there, Dr. Vipond? You know, I've, I've actively avoided learning about immunizations, not because it's not interesting, but because I, I just, my brain only holds so much information. So I've really tried to focus on airborne transmission and, and, and COVID policy. But uh, the last, if I'm just going to randomly throw out a fact, I, I think it's that there, there have been, if not no, at least very few cases of myocarditis. And that which seems to be the most uh, worrisome side effect of the vaccines um, in that five to 11 range. And and there's lots of evidence that there's much higher rates of myocarditis from COVID than from the vaccine. So um, avoid COVID, basically. And so I would, I would uh, 
echo Dr. Joe's recommendation. I would add, like I've got colleagues um, who, Joe and I, we have colleagues that would advocate the opposite. There's a few around the country. And so that makes me think, like, oh, do I have it wrong? But I don't, I don't believe I do. It's an annoying decision to like this pandemic. We make so many annoying decisions as parents every day, COVID aside. So this is just another annoying one. And COVID's being very pushy with the timeline. But I think, okay, even if I'm hesitant about getting my kid the vaccine, gosh, I'd rather be wrong about, um, I'd, I'd rather, you know, wonder, should I have gotten them that dose of vaccine than wonder, oh my gosh, now that they have COVID unvaccinated or half vaccinated, what are the outcomes of this? of this going to be. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is if if you're hesitant to get your kid vaccinated at 21 days, that's fine. Um, uh, and I think a lot of parents feel that. But if the purpose of vaccinating is to protect our kids from COVID, well, there's no better time to do that than with all the COVID raging around right now, including with kids going back to school with what I um, understand are uh, um, None of the precautions or virtually none of the precautions that Wing outlined uh, in, in her talk. And Dr. Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Pfizer study on the 5 to 11 range was a three-week interval um, between vaccines, right? And so this recommendation from NASI, um, I think, is due to um, uh, some caution that they're putting forward. But the actual scientific evidence supports a three-week vaccine because that, that's what we're basing our... Yeah, that's my understanding of it. Um, um, the eight-week caution from NASI, um, I don't sit on the committee, but I suspect it is related to the incidence of myocarditis in the 12 to 29-year-old range. Um, the, the U.S. study that included kids from all over the world um, included 21 days. It also included the adult dose. Um, and uh, to the best of my knowledge, last I checked, did not report anything concerning from that dose. But kid, they also found that kids only need a third of that that adult dose. Thank you all so very much for your time. We still have thousands of questions. We are not going to get through them all. So I would love to give an opportunity for each of you all to give some of your takeaways for what is a very nervous parent and education community that is going to be facing classrooms of 33 students that don't have consistent masking regulations, that have kids eating in their classrooms, that will not be made aware necessarily of positive cases in the spaces, and will basically be left with um, not exceptionally well-fitting um, medical masks. And maybe some rapid tests, maybe these things appearing five days into our winter break school year starting. So maybe to start with you, Dr. Vipond, and then we'll go over to Dr. Lee, Bridget, and then conclude things with Dr. Oliver before we say our goodbye, goodbye. Um, so through the pandemic, we've had these, these myths that have been um, promulgated by our leaders. And um, the ones that come to mind are uh, there's no asymptomatic, asymptomatic spread. Um, there's no uh, airborne transmission um, and there's no transmission in schools. But there's been a fourth added in the last few weeks. And that's uh, I find really disturbing and I want to fight it. And that is everyone's going to get it. Everyone's going to get COVID. The, 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 the uh, language used yesterday by Dr. Hinshaw was everyone's going to be exposed to COVID. But I think the implicit... Um, 
communication there was we're all going to get it. Um, and and I don't I don't believe that. I believe that if you know how to mitigate spread, you can protect yourself. So what does that mean for kids going into schools? I think it means wearing essentially wearing the best mask possible. Uh, because this is an airborne transmitted disease that needs to be inhaled, you can protect yourself by avoiding that uh, inhalation. So make sure that your mask fits. I, I would, again, surmise that uh, the, the masks that they're going to be provided are not fitting. So go get some good fitting masks or build yourself a mask brace for the mask that you're provided. And don't take that mask off when you're in school. Um, there's one trouble part for that, and that's lunch. And I don't have a good answer for that. Um, but I, I challenge our very smart people, our educators as to figure this out. This isn't a public health problem. This is a logistical problem. Staggering lunches, putting ventilation systems multiple into a room where there's multiple kids eating, spreading them out, making them eat outside. If it's half decent, if it's minus 10, that's a, hey, it's outdoor lunch day today, kids. Um, Taking your kid home for lunch, um, as a, if you if you live close enough to the school, those are all um, some options I'm just throwing out, and I bet you there's better options out there as well. Um, uh, the uh, if it's if if it's true that they've given up and expect us all to be infected, um, your purest act of rebellion is to uh, is to is to not get infected or to try your damnedest not to get infected, and and let's be honest. We may fail. I think none of all none of our systems are perfect, and when the kids go into that school place, they 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 don't have um, you know we can't protect them from everything. So there may be failures, but damn it, let's try and and let's try and keep our kids safe. I'll go next. Then one thing I'd add, I, I feel like I've already said a lot of my talking points. Other than that, this government is continuing to be absolutely reckless and absolutely negligent. That's my official reaction to today's announcement, um, continuing to make students pay uh, in this pandemic. The other thing I want to add is that teachers and education workers have absolutely come out. They have carried these past few years with taking on extra work. They were already underfunded as it was. And... That's what I want to finish off with is that acknowledge these people working in the schools that have done what they can um, as workers, but also doing their best while teaching. Um, I, I think it's incredible that they continue to come and show up on a, on a you know, a, a notice, very short notice uh, with lesson plans, as well as helping students uh, stay safe um, and, you know, as, as distance as they can and all of those things. So I guess my message is of gratitude for all the education workers that are on the ground and will be going to the ground is that we continue to push for you for safer workplaces as well as safer learning environments for students. Yeah, and I, I don't think those people have had really a, a good rest since March of 2020 and I, I yeah, I, I can't believe sometimes that the way people are still standing up under under everything they're facing right now, COVID and all the rest of it. One thing I do want to say is I, I have a lot of people ask me, you know, what should I do? Should I send my child back? Should I, you know, should I stay home for lunch? Should I, you know, should I, you know, should they eat lunch in school? What do we do? And I, I think every decision on it's a, a 
an individual decision based on, you know, what works for your family and what works for your child. You know, some kids do better learning remotely than other kids do. Like there's lots of different factors there. Um, but we are not going to be able to individual choice our way out of this. You know, like everything else with the pandemic, you know, what we do as individuals matters, but it will not fix things, right? It is our collective action as people that will address the situation in schools, right? So absolutely, as a parent, make make the choices that you feel are going to be best for the safety of your child and your family, but recognize that not every family maybe has the ability to make the choices that you do um, and that part of our collective responsibility is to advocate. So every single kid and every single person who works in the school has their safety protected. Um, and so whether or not you can choose to go home, it's still really, really important for you to raise your voice for all of the people who are still gonna be going into that school every day because they need you to stand up for them and those kids really need all of us to speak for them. And they need us to be in solidarity with everybody who's working in schools, making sure that those, you know, those kids are safe and that they're learning and that they're getting the best education they can in one of the toughest times they'll probably face in their lives. So. I really wanted to come in with something novel and profound here, but I want to echo what Joe and Wing and Bridget uh, have said. Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, I was in teacher's college for half a day um, years ago, I thought, no, too hard, uh, and left. And so, but from that, I still have these connections over the years where I, I see teachers, like it's always been the thing with teaching where you buy your own stuff, you buy your own markers and pencil print and all everything. It's out of pocket, out of pocket. And now all these teachers and colleagues and friends and teaching are going around and now they're thinking, well, now I have to buy my own N95s and I have to, you know, buy my own HEPA filter and that. And so, uh, it makes me mad that uh, this is my mad face. It it makes me mad that the government uh, is not mobilized to provide these things, um, not just in a timely fashion, but at all. Um, uh, governments across Canada. Um, uh, I also think, though, it's it is okay to celebrate what we can do on the ground now. Uh, and if that, if it's you sending, if you're sending your kid to school on Monday or whatever day, um, you know, I, I would just encourage folks to, not that you need to hear this from me, but let your teacher know that you see them and you see uh, what they're doing for your kids. Um, if you have 25 respirators for kids, um, maybe you share one with the family that doesn't maybe uh, educate another family on, on the importance of them. There's a, I would end on, there's a story uh, from the CBC this morning about a principal in, Ed, I think it was Edmonton. It was somewhere in Alberta, a principal and whoever it was, uh, families in the neighborhood or something um, decided that they were going to outfit their school with, um, these uh, uh, homemade HEPA filters that that work and work very well. Um, and they went for it. They made them for all the classes. And while on the one hand, it, it should not have to be like that, on the other hand, um, uh, uh, I thought that was beautiful. Um, because I do, there's a lot of focus on, on kids, but I, I will, uh, there's a, I would say as a, as a pediatrician, I think uh, what really 
gets me in the feels is seeing all of the teachers mobilize and maybe when they're being told not to and the principals mobilize and when they're being told not to. And I think that's just um, friggin' beautiful. But um, uh, whether or not you, uh, the absolute final thing I'll, I'll say and I'll stop uh, taking all the time here is uh, whatever you decide as a parent to send your kid to school on Monday or not or next week or not, um, just know that uh, it sucks having to make these decisions. They're annoying decisions. Uh, and um, for the most part, it, it is okay to uh, deliberate on them and, and not always get them right. And that you're, I think it's clear, but you are not alone. That is an excellent statement to end on. Um, as I I strongly believe that is one of the primary purposes of Pop Alberta, that concept of community and reminder that we are not alone. So thank you for joining us for this little bit longer but exceptionally necessary first episode of 2022. We'll be back again next week, maybe soon, sooner. Um, so remember to subscribe on whatever service you've been tuning in on um, so that you can receive all of the notifications. Um, we're going to be playing up this layer up concept as much as we can as we work towards safer schools and a safer 2022. Also a shout out to Sarah B for throwing this graphic together this afternoon after the conversation that the Pop AB team had last night. Um, but as always, stay safe, Alberta. Remember, COVID-19 is airborne, wear the best mask you have access to, and vaccines really do save lives. Mm -hmm.